Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I'm your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing today, Josh? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Much better. Feeling better. Steve's getting over the COVID, so that's good. Uh, and we are very excited. Uh, many things we are going to talk about with this man, but we are joined by writer, director Richard Jefferies. Uh, you might know him from some of his 80s horror films, like the one he co-wrote and directed, Blood Tide, which I just noticed has a uh, cool Blu-ray from Arrow Films out. Mm -hmm. uh, he also did Scarecrows and a film near and dear to my heart as a child, Bill Paxton starring the vagrant. Um, and vagrant, very vagrant rules. Yeah, it, vagrant. And so does so does Scarecrows, by the way. Scarecrows is pretty dope too. I love I love your films from back then. Uh, so. very, very varied <laughs> career, especially from some of these unmade ones. But then you also did the Chevy Chase movie, Man of the House, and the Mike Figgis movie, Cold Creek Manor, among many other things. Yeah. I recently had a friend in Australia who said. You wrote 14 going on 30. It was a Disney Sunday movie. And she said, I watched that as a kid. All the time. You know, I'm running into people who have a specific yeah. you know, thing that they know. You about. never know when you, you yeah. get them at the right age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It. yeah. And, and, and man of the house is like that too. I run into people, my sister and I used to watch that every day after school. And I'd cry when Jonathan Taylor Thomas had that scene. So yeah, it's, it's nice that it's sort of like fine wine. It's aged well, a lot of my work. And I assume you're, did you do a new commentary for Blood Tide? The... Yes, new nice. commentary and for Scarecrows, the, the Blu-ray remastering, they had me do a commentary for. Uh, I don't know if it made its way through the grapevine to you, but every year, the new Beverly Cinema, which Quentin Tarantino now owns, but it's been open right. since the 70s, they do a uh, Halloween marathon earlier in the month. And they never announce what movies they're showing. And they showed Scarecrows. So <laughs> awesome. I can tell you the story about Scarecrows at some point. It's it's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, let that Steve, why don't you where do you want to kick us off here? Or actually, sorry, I, I'll kick us off. I can't believe I forget forgot the most important first step. Uh, can you tell us your origin story, how you got into the business, where you came from? Right. I grew up in small town, Maryland, where I am now once again. You know, you can never go home again, but I did. <laughs> and I was first interested in, well, seriously, from about the age of nine in magic, doing magic. And it turns out a lot of filmmakers had this early fascination. And I used to actually perform for money at kids' birthday parties. And stuff. it was like a profession by the time I was 12 years old. Were you doing the like mail order magic yeah. Oh, yeah. stuff? Yeah, because that's yeah. all we had. No internet. So like these catalogs from magic <laughs> suppliers in Chicago and stuff. And you try to scrape together money and buy, you know, equipment and stuff. But I did that. And then well, the problem was my friends... They, I, I do a show for them or whatever, and they'd say, well, how'd you do that? And I go, well, I can't tell you. And they go, come on, just tell us how you did it. And I go, no, I can't. And they get really mad. And like I was, and it's like, or they'd like dig around in my stuff and figure it out or something. And it was like, so then I discovered a better kind of magic, which was making movies, because you could explain to somebody how you did it, and the illusion still worked. Mm-hmm because it was just purely visual. They couldn't get their hands on it. And uh, anyway, so that was my progression was from magic to movies, you know, with my dad's regular eight millimeter camera doing like trick photography and stuff. And then uh, I started since I grew up in a small town and there weren't other people to pull together a crew and actors making making a live action film was a major endeavor back then. I mean, you had to shoot like on 16 millimeter and sound and it was it was expensive and big production. So I um, started by making animated films and I made one when I was I guess I was 13 that won like the PBS. They had just changed it from NET to PBS and they had a Young People's Film Festival and I won in my age category and went down to D.C. to W.E.T.A., the uh, you know, local PBS station, 
and they interviewed me and they showed the film and, and they had the the three age categories and whatever and then it went on and did it like was shown in a national compendium of all these films from the the PBS uh, various regional competitions anyway so that encouraged me and my parents that I wasn't wasting my time so I made another and that was called The Buck, and it was more cartoony animation, uh, very limited animation. But uh, then I made a more artistic, I guess you would say, movie called Crowd that was, you know, these are three minute shorts. And it was sort of uh, uh, inspired by the Levi's commercials of the 70s, you know, a lot of rotoscoping. And it sort of looked like I was on acid when I made it, although <laughs> I, I never was. And that one went all over the world winning awards at festivals and that was i was about 16 when that sort of hit you were just doing all these in your bedroom in my basement home? in, in basement. my basement yeah. yeah it was just like i don't know it's there were i was interested in things that nobody else was so i just pursued them on my own and then i started looking at well where i hated formal academics i just it put me to sleep you know in history class and stuff so I would take like a lot of graphic arts and drama and be where you're actually doing stuff and making stuff. And I applied when I found out about it to California Institute of the Arts, which was really new when I found out about it. And their regional or their uh, national recruitment person was in D.C. I went down and met with him, showed my movies. And he sort of said, well, I can't guarantee you anything, but given your resume at this age, you're a shoe in to get in. <laughs> so I I did get in in 1974, you know, picked up, drove my Datsun 1200 across country in three days and ended up in L.A. And uh, well, north of L.A., you know, Valencia, which was sort of the boonies back then at CalArts. And CalArts was only in its third year of existence. So it was still very experimental. And I gather still is. But it was the Wild West days of CalArts. And I had roommates who you just don't know, like, oh, the geeky kid over there named Tim Burton. <laughs> oh, my wow. kid is a year younger than me that wants to work on my live action movie because he wants to learn how to set a C-stand. John Lasseter. <laughs> you know, and my best friend, who uh, I can tell you how we bond, we, we made a, a, a music video before it was even called music videos to the song Fame by David Bowie. It was this challenge by the Midnight Special, if anybody remembers that program, which was the only music program like on Friday nights, you know, after everything else was off the air. And they challenged us to take a million selling song and make a movie to or they wanted to see if we had a movie they could put up against a million selling song. So cheap product for them. And I call them up and I say, well, I don't have a movie, but I'll make one. And they're like, really? And I go, yeah. So. My friend Mark Kirkland, who has be become the most prolific Simpsons director in history, he's directed more episodes of The Simpsons than anyone. Just check his IMDb. Mm -hmm. um, and we're still dear friends. Uh, we made a movie in three weeks that got on the air and they even paid us more than they were supposed to pay us. They liked it so much and it got shown again and again. And we heard it showed up at, at Bowie concerts. And so that was called Fame and uh, to the song Fame by David Bowie. And so that was my early cow. That was just like we, we were still, I don't know, 20 years old when that happened. And then it ended up winning a Student Academy Award that year. So wow. it's like, whoa, all this stuff is happening and we're still not even close to being finished college. So that's and then I sort of veered more into live action. I never intended to be a writer. It was always just I would conceive of a movie, but then in a live action production, you have to actually put it on paper so the other departments understand what you're doing, you know, what you're going yeah. to get on screen. So uh, <clears throat> I would start writing and I took writing workshops. And it's like my my writing teachers were like, wow, you're, you're a really good writer. And I go, well, I really haven't written that much anymore. But it came so naturally to me and effortless that it was... I guess like a musician, you can just pick up an instrument at an early age and play it. So I don't know whether I have many past lives as a writer or something, <laughs> but I just came in equipped to do that. So I wrote. And then when we got out of CalArts, that was 
I, I took jobs on, uh, on uh, you know, doing special effects work and stuff, but I have really bad allergies. So like all this smoke and dust and stuff, you know, because they were doing them not digitally, but like models and stuff mm -hmm. and airplanes, crash, you know, model airplanes crashing. Oh, I worked on Roger Corman's movie Avalanche Express. It was like his big <laughs> movie with Rock Hudson. Yeah. And the visual effects were by... Oh, God, Junior was his name. But the, it was the guy who who ended up, I ran into him a couple of years later. And, he, you know, hey, how's it going down there at the visual? He says, oh, I've got this young director who's driving us crazy, doesn't know what he's doing. He keeps changing his mind. And he was describing this robot thing he had to animate. It was James Cameron. It was Terminator. I was going to ask if you worked <laughs> yeah. on anything with him. I, I didn't, but uh, yeah, yeah. Gene sure. Warren and Gene Warren Jr., where they did the, like the Pillsbury Doughboy back then. That was their claim to fame. But anyway, I couldn't do it because I just, you know, I would just, I, I, my allergies are too bad. So writing was great. I could sit at home, I, you know, take some meetings and do. So I wrote, and one of the scripts I wrote was The Vagrant early on, like 10 years before it was produced. And that came out of, <laughs> okay, I don't know how much you want to get into this writer <laughs> process stuff, but it's encouraging to people who aspire to write. I tell them this. That whenever anything bad happens in your career, and it will, and you will be devastated, and you will feel like just leaving the whole thing behind, and you may, but if you don't, channel that into new work. So that's happened a couple of times significantly for me where, okay, Blood Tide, it was called Blood Tide. It was called the Red Tide originally. Oh, no, it was called Man Shark originally. Okay. Nice. This is a, how, this is the, from the very flicker of of existence this thing is I've, i i had this guest house near on studios in studio city along ventura boulevard and i'm driving down ventura boulevard soon after i moved into la at, you know after graduating cal arts and i see one of these mini billboards like these you know portrait kind of aspect uh uh billboards for the greek tycoon with anthony quinn and jacqueline Bissett, and it's like it looked like the trashiest piece of awful studio crap. And I said, if I ever have to work with people who make that shit, I'm getting out of the business. <laughs> Within a year, I was in the office of that producer at Paramount <laughs> named Nico Mastarakis. And it was through a production manager friend of mine who, the, you know, he was looking for a free writer. He had a deal at Paramount and it was on in its ending and they weren't going to renew it. And so he was kind of desperate to get something going. So he represented himself as being the president of this film studio in Greece, which turned out not to be true exactly. But he had this one sentence idea, you know, a, a mutant shark man thing attacks, you know, teenagers on an island kind of thing. And I said, well, I think I can do better than that. And mm -hmm. but the deal was and he actually offered this is that if we go forward in production with your script, you can direct it. Wow. <laughs> and the little did I know, he could have completely screwed me on that yeah. contract at any point. So, uh, but the interesting thing happened. I wrote the script, it started getting some you know, traction and it, it got in the hands of a guy named Donald Langdon, who was associated with, um, uh, who are the guys who made Terminator? Uh, 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 Hemdale, Hemdale. Mm, oh yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So I met at Hemdale and, and Hemdale and I, the British, it was, Donald Lang was British and he didn't like Nico Mastarakis. But so there was this ongoing battle between the two of them, but they both liked me and they both had my confidence. So I never got fired at any point. I could have gotten fired. So I find myself on a Greek island with James Earl Jones, Jose Ferrer, Lyle Kadroba, Marty Cove, and, you know, the cast you see in the movie and making this movie in very primitive circumstances. I mean, they didn't have a dolly. So I had to go all John Ford. OK, how do we do lockdown <laughs> shots? Almost the whole movie and handheld. Forget it. The AC couldn't hit the focus. So they had a steady cam crew from Mexico. It was like, no, it takes three hours to set up a shot. Can't do this. So, and a storm came by and blew down everything. And the crew <laughs> went on strike because they weren't getting paid. And the financier in London ended up in an asylum, committed and could not sign checks. 
Technicolor Whoa. actually ruined a couple of roles. Uh, Technicolor London ruined a couple of roles of our film. Uh, I mean, it's like, and then in the end, we all departed and, oh, we'll call you. We're going to edit in Mexico and we'll let you know. Well, they never let me know. And a friend of mine one day said, uh, I was part of a small animation camera service down in Hollywood called New Hollywood Incorporated. And one of my partner friends there, David Koningsberg, who used to run the New Beverly Cinema, he used to program it. Anyway, uh, David said, hey, you know, my friend Ozzy, who was also a partner in that, who was an editor, he said he he said the 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 they're at uh, crossroads of the world, and he said this movie's being edited next door, and it sounded really familiar. He said it's like on a Greek island and James Earl Jones, and I said, well, there aren't two of them. So I actually got in the car and drove down there to crossroads of the world, and I'm like looking around in open doorways, and I come to an editing room, and there's nobody in there, and I like look, and there's film on the movie Ola, and I go, this is my movie, and I had this moment of you know, I could just put all this shit in my car right now and get my movie. They were cutting the movie without me. That's why my name spelled wrong on the movie. It spelled right on the new arrow box, okay. but spelled wrong on the movie. So that was my, it was so traumatic, the production of it. And the, the fact that I had nothing to do with the editing of the movie at all. And, or the shooting of the additional footage and the cheesy looking monster and all that stuff. I was so depressed that I wrote The Vagrant. It, it it propelled me into writing something that would be so kind of insightful and and weird that uh, that's how the vagrant came to be. And I'll tell you, as we jump forward to flies, there is another career leap like that, that if you handle it correctly, can be a, a bad thing, can be a really good thing. So anyway. So yeah, that's like around wow. 1982-ish, because that's when Blood yeah, Well, we out. shot in Greece in 1980. And I will tell you the best thing that happened was my my girlfriend of three years. We had a bi-coastal relationship. I insisted she go with me to see what this insane industry is that I'm part of. And she thought the actors were like babies. And she was like literally babysitting them and hearing all this shit and everything. And when we got back, we went down to the L.A. courthouse and got married on 9-11-1980. And that's my wife to this day, 43 years later. Gene, that's that bonded us. That's yeah, situation. <laughs> trial by fire. It it truly was, and and I lived in this guest house where the there's like a key visual of looking out over Ventura Boulevard over what used to be an empty lot and had kind of this hill, and I imagine a guy with a fire there like cooking his dinner on there. Like a homeless, and that was before homelessness was even a big thing. I mean, political correctness, you couldn't make the movie now because, you know, you're ripping on the homeless. But it was this this guy. And that kind of gave me the seed for The Vagrant. And I just started writing and, and flow as often does. It just flows out of me. I don't know where it comes from, particularly my original work. So anyway, ask me what you will. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a... That's an origin story. That's yeah, that's <laughs> well, what, before. I mean, I guess before we get to Sonic, because I have that before flies. I mean, you did. Uh, do you remember a project you did write in like 1994? It says original screenplay for James Cameron's Lightstorm is called Rendezvous. Yeah, well, it wasn't for him. It was a spec script I wrote, which I have right here. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a this is the old William Morris cover. Oh wow! Sorry, those listening can't see, but uh, <laughs> yeah, there it is. There it is, and and Lightstorm is on there. This was, let me see the chronology. This was before Flies and before Sonic. So this was 1990 is the date on this draft. But um, I had written a short story in high school that this is based on. Guy's in a car wreck. He wakes up in another place that's not earth and is told earth doesn't exist it was all part of an experiment and it's all been programmed into his brain he insists earth exists that that idea was in a short story i wrote years before and then i sat down and wrote this script or what became rendezvous it's called peter's earth just for the archivist if they run into peter's earth it's the same script the same idea i wrote that 
I usually write, when I would write original scripts early in my career, I'd write three at a time. Like I wrote three, including The Vagrant and Living Hell, which ended up being made as Organism. We can talk about that, you know, which I directed for uh, uh, Dark Lot Entertainment, Odd Lot, Dark Lot. A anyway, so I had written this as part of a three script burst in the mid 80s. And it was just sitting around. And once I got picked up at William Morris in 1987, which uh, other hint to writers, if you want a career boost, get your wife pregnant. It does amazing <laughs> things. The stars align. I went from having a house and a mortgage, no job, no lawyer, no agent, no prospects, nothing. And then we got the news. We're pregnant. <laughs> awesome. Well, all of a sudden, through a personal contact, I was called and said, hey, are you looking for an agent? I go, yeah. <laughs> well, I have a friend I play tennis with named Dodie Gold, who just got her, her bumped up to agent at William Morris, and she's looking around for clients. I go, OK. So I met, anyway, I get signed by Dodie. <laughs> wow. And about the same time, two other nobody ever heard of them before writers, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio got signed. And that's how we got to know each other. We were like among her handful of first clients at William Morris. So yeah, she, she, after we kind of, I mean, I hit the ground running. I got a job script doctoring on Michael Jackson's smooth criminal, which is actually oh, like with Joe Pesci, that whole, yeah. Rewriting um, Joe Pesci. Yeah, uh, Sean Lennon. It, it's in that collection. Yeah, that's the only place you see the whole movie because the idea was it's like thriller. Yeah, we got a song, but we're going to build this whole story around it. And Michael was clearly in charge and they were willing to spend tons of money on the thing. They had every visual effect shot was shot in VistaVision. And at one point, I walk over to this pile of equipment from DreamQuest was the company. And, and apparently they bought their building in Simi Valley from that job. They, I counted up the equipment cases and like they had eight VistaVision cameras sitting there and they weren't even used that day. It was just on the call sheet that they might be. Wow. And so there was this river of money. But anyway, so I I uh, got called in to rewrite the kids dialogue because Michael had wanted to do it improvised. You know, the three kids, that's sort of one of the storylines. And it didn't work. It's hard to make improvisation work with really good actors. You know, they need those train tracks. You know, where am I going with the scene? And and um, mostly and the kids, really, they were just lost. So it did. So they took the producer and who is Dennis Jones, who he, I forget what his credit is on Back to the Future, but he was like high level producer. And we were over at the Culver Studios. They take me into a room and sit me down and there's a monitor and they say, OK, we're just going to play it for you. And they didn't really say what it was play it for you. And they left the room. So I'm sitting there watching. And it's like 45 minutes long. It's rambling. It's going on and on. A lot of stuff doesn't make sense. And uh, okay, finished up, come out. Yeah. Okay. So what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we want you to read re the kids dialogue and da, da, da. And I said, okay, yeah, it's great. And they liked the kids dialogue. I'd have written in a specific script that they read. And I got that gig. But, well, I said at the end of the meeting, I said, well, is, is there anything else, any other comments you 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 want from me about and they they, they like the editor and Dennis like leaned forward and said yes they were lost they were like <laughs> they needed help so I ended up rewriting a lot of stuff and I I think like an editor I've edited quite a bit and so I made their life easier how to use what you have and you know make it work better so I was involved with that I was on the set for three weeks that was my first experience out of William Morris then quickly, I Dodie was working it, and I got a situation where there was a, a James Orr and Jim Crookshank who had done Three Men and a Baby, were like big men on campus at Disney at that point, had a, a an idea that was not big enough for a feature in Disney's eyes, but they thought it would make a good Disney Sunday movie. Orr and Crookshank were completely tied down with feature projects, so they were looking for a writer to write it. I went up on Mulholland, where I think it was James's house, lived. And they said, good, we want to hire you. Good meeting. You know, let's let's do this. They sort of had a sketch of an idea. Well, I don't even think it was a treatment yet. But I said, OK, I want to do it. So we went back and they were 
we were just in the process of making the deal and Dodie called and said, I have a meeting with a producer that wants to meet you right away. It was Doug Wick who had just won the Oscar for Working Girl. So he was like hot producer. He was over at Columbia and I went over there and met with, and, and they had sent me a script. Yeah, that's right. They had sent me a script, a teen mummy comedy called Unraveled. And it was just awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was just awful. And so, but he wanted to meet with me anyway. Okay, so we meet, whatever. And then he gets around to saying, so you read Unraveled, huh? And I said, yeah, yeah. And I had sort of, it's just the way I am. And I found it's a successful way to be more or less in Hollywood is just speak your mind, speak your truth. Don't try to guess what people want you to say. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's a mess. I said, you, I said, you could, you would have to completely go back and change this and replace this and change this character relationship and make the whole arc different and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I just spewed this out, like what you would have to do to like just trash that other script and start again. He said, I want to hire you. I'm getting Dodie on the phone right now. And there was this, he got my agent on the phone and said, what's it going to take? And she said, well, he already has a deal at Disney. So you're going to have to wait. And he goes, no, we can't wait. So they made a better offer than Disney. And it was a feature with Dino, Dino De Laurentiis' company. So I'm like, here I am. It's like Friday late, I, you know, and I'm I'm like, how, how do I tell? I mean, Dodie. So Dodie said, well, just go home and, you know, relax over the weekend. So I said, damn, I, I really like those guys over at the Disney project and I want to work with them. And, you know, but no, they can't wait either. So what I did was I got up, I woke up like on Saturday morning and I started writing 14 going on 30, the Disney Sunday movie. Anyway, I just started. I said, OK, I've already turned it down. I told them I can't do it, but I feel so bad. I'm just going <laughs> to write it anyway. So by Sunday, about noon. I had 65 pages of it written. It was like a 90 page TV movie. So I called Dodie and I said, look, I did. I just want to give it to him. Right. Because I feel so bad. And she <laughs> said, no, no, no. We don't give them anything. <laughs> anything. So she called them on a Sunday afternoon, uh, the executive and said, well, he did this. He likes it so much. He just started writing it anyway. So he's already mostly there if you we can just kind of work out the schedule. So in the end, I ended up doing both of the projects and the Disney Sunday movie was in production. So all of that had happened by the time my son was born. And then pretty soon I was on a picket line because the writers went into their <laughs> five month strike in 1988, I guess, 87. Anyway, so that's that's how my William Morris career. Began. Wait, what happened to the unraveled so, one? Did that yeah, I was going to ask. Never that's got the... made. Never got made. There was a director named John Fox who was a, you know, I always wonder about Hollywood's fascinating. I mean, he was a nice guy and everything and talented at what he did. Not No knock on him. But he had done like short films for Saturday Night Live. It's like, well, this isn't really storytelling. You know, it's moments. But there's a whole skill set involved with making a feature film. So it it just it didn't go, you know, but I met with Raffaella De Laurentiis and Alan Rich was running the company at that point. He became a fan and we we you know, I developed a base of fans who would continually give me projects. And so I ended up working with good people consistently for the most part and, you know, didn't have too much agony. But Hollywood itself delivers agony in, in other ways. And we can talk about that on Flies. <laughs> yeah so like in 1988 uh scarecrows comes out and then the yeah. following year it looks like you had a movie that you wrote for chevy chase and farrah fawcett that never came out or never it was oh, made yeah. no that's pal uh, uh, uh man of the house, man of the house. It was, it oh was that's produced. man of the house that yeah. was in 89 it was uh written oh uh, okay. no that was that was later that was for bet midler's company all girl I, I was a guy working for all girl productions at disney quite proud of it yeah, that was trying to remember the chronology exactly, but I thought that was more like 95, 96. It came out in 95. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there you go. It, it was and it was made. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I took the job and why it was made, because I learned, I guess, Dodie, my agent, 
had learned this, or I, maybe in my first meeting, I, they told me that Michael Eisner and his son went into the Indian Guides program and just loved it. And they bonded and he wanted to do a movie about that. <laughs> so there had been other drafts. Uh, that's why David Peck and Paul is on there. He, he had written the original draft, but we just started from scratch. So I felt like this movie is going to get made as long as Michael Eisner is you know, CEO of Disney. This movie is going to get produced. And sure enough, it did. And Oren Cruikshank, here I am sort of bumping into them again. They had done the Disney Sunday movie and they end up. And you know what? I didn't even know it was in production. This happens to writers all the time. They'll get a call from the guild going, well, we have a, an arbitration and, you know, we, we need your, your writer's statement from whenever, you know. And I go, what? What movie is this? And they go, oh, <laughs> uh, Man to Man was the title. And I go, what is that? <laughs> so what and it turned out to be Pals Forever became Man to Man became Man of the House. And uh, okay. uh, as often happens in the, you know, the archaeology of titles and, and marketing. And that's that's what that was. But that was a comedy. And I wrote all kinds of stuff. I wrote like family dramas and comedies. And then my sci-fi dark kind of that's what they really wanted out of me. And that's and and the James Cameron uh, Rendezvous Project, which was my spec script that he took. And we had meetings. That's right. When he started Lightstorm, he was going into production on Terminator 2. And he liked me. And we actually the way it was with the first meeting we had is at his house up on Mulholland. All these houses on Mulholland have had meetings. on. <laughs> we go up there and he and Catherine Bigelow were married at the time. And Catherine also really loved the script. And she and I had the same attorney, Linda Lichter. So I think Linda kind of pushed it from the the Catherine Bigelow side. But then it also went into Lightstorm. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how it caught fire there, but. Jim and Catherine were there at the meeting and the basic take was Jim wanted to produce it for Catherine to direct. And he said, if she gets hit by a bus, I'll direct it. And there was a producer named Barbara Levy, who I was working with and developing the script from its original form. She was part of that meeting and part of the deal. And so it was an option and a rewrite step. And so I got Jim's notes you know, it's funny. I, I, one of the other things I tell uh, writers who are just getting started is it really sucks to get screwed in Hollywood by somebody. Well, if you're going to get screwed in Hollywood, get screwed by somebody really talented <laughs> because the other way really sucks. Like if you get some, you know, so, and I've had both, but uh, so Jim, I won't say he screwed me, but it, this is a, this has happened to me a lot where directors, they see movies in their way and the writer sees and slaves away at creating a vision and seeing the movie their way. And often the two don't meet. So how do you reconcile that? Well, often it's to fire the original writer and the director hires their own writer and they do it their own damn way. And often the project fails because it loses the life it had. Yeah. And I know that because I've done arbitrations where I read 14 drafts oh, wow, that first draft is really fun. It's great. And then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then you sort of feel like, oh, they just hired a star and they're putting money into it. They got a better writer who sort of recaptured what was good about it. And then it started getting bad again because the marketing guys got in there or something. It's like <laughs> the archaeology of how to ruin a movie. So Jim hired, he, he, ended, I could, he wanted to make it about like a guy with a gun. And it's like, that's not what this movie is. It was a cross-dimensional romance and it was sci-fi but it was basically a, a big romance which by the way he never wrote a romance before my script hit him and then he wrote titanic so all i'm saying <laughs> he really liked my script and by the way 10 years after he optioned my script we get a call i'm on the way to an mit conference about media whatever cross pollinating with hollywood and that was about 1999. And it, it, I was ready to get on the plane the next day. And my agent calls and says, OK, you got to meet this afternoon with, with uh, Gary Fletter. They're shooting a movie. It's Dimension. They got to put a bunch of money into it. They're in pre-production and the script sucks and they need help. 
So Gary called Jim Cameron and said, I need a sci-fi writer. Who, who do you recommend? He recommended three people. I got the job. That was 10 years after he. Wow. Yeah. So he remembered, he remembered and was inspired. I'll go no further. But so I have nothing against Jim. I think he's a very talented filmmaker. It was just painful because he hired another writer, or I should say Larry Kasanoff, his guy, because he's busy making T2. And I never read it. I would never do that. That's torture to read it. Like flies guy. Okay, that's we're getting back to flies. <laughs> so pain, the pain of of being an inspired creative person who believes in what you're doing in and trying to make a living in Hollywood. That's that's, that's the tagline of me in my 20 years in that echelon. And then that that just ultimately fizzled out under the new writer. Yeah, it usually does. Yeah. You know, it's just like if you can't keep that chemistry that people read on the page, if you if you can't like keep that intact, that is the hardest thing to find a filmmaker who will take that to the next level and not lose what was great about it. So then flies, how did flies come about? I got a call from Randy Auerbach, who I'd gotten to know quite well, his uh, development person and uh, confidant. And she said, this project flies, it came in through Gina Davis, who was in the original of course, fly, the fly, and career had done quite well after that. So she had an idea for a sequel. Well, there had already been a sequel called the fly Two directed by Chris Wallace, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't perform well. It didn't do well. I mean, it's, that's a huge shadow to operate in when the fly was just an amazing success and David Cronenberg. So the sequel didn't really take off. So everybody was just acting as if that never happened. So now we're taking the story of the follow-up of the original fly. And Gina had an idea and she was smart. And we, we met, she liked me, Fox hired me. And so in collaborative situations, what I like to do, I mean, I do it for myself sometimes in collaborations, definitely, is, is tell them, bring in a pinnable surface, at least this dimension by that dimension. And we're going to put up four by six cards and we're going to try to just beat out the story. So we're all in agreement of what happens when and everything, you know, act one, act two, act three, the beats. And you can't really have more than about 30 or 40 cards or you're cheating. And you can't, you got to use a Sharpie because you can't write like little shit. You got to like <laughs> write big that you can read it across the room. That's the beat, you know, Bob kills David. Ah, okay. That's a beat. So we did that with Gina and uh, I think maybe three meetings like that, that we did. And she would often get calls and she was really good about not just, you know, wasting our time, but she would get calls from her boyfriend and she would go outside and talk and come back in and, you know, whatever we resume. So I wrote the draft. The original was like in March of 93, a couple of drafts, early notes. Then we got together and Fanny Levy was Gina's development person. Very nice. We got along great. And so I, this little group worked on it. And then they had their notes for my official second draft. We had sent it to the studio and gotten their notes. And so now this was the draft to incorporate studio notes and anything else. So I'm off writing that. And I get one of these calls you don't like to ever get in your career. <clears throat> it was from Fanny Levy. And it, I was about halfway through the revision. And she says, I hate to be the one to tell you this. Now, who wants to get that kind of phone yeah, call? Yeah, nothing good is going <laughs> to follow that. Yeah. Well, turns out the boyfriend Gina was talking to was Rennie Harlan, who was Mr. Hot Director from Finland, who I happen to know something about. Just an aside, a friend of mine worked, Joe, I'll keep him anonymous. He'll know. <laughs> Worked at Cinema Group, which was the company that picked up Rennie Harlan's Finnish made production called Born American. I think that was the title it was released under. And they and he came here and he was trying to get his next project going and, you know, struggling and living in a, a crummy little motel on Sunset. And so he would take my friend Joe, who was doing development and read a lot of scripts, had a lot of coverage on stuff. 
he would take him out for a cheap lunch and pick his brain. So he got to know Rennie pretty well before he was anybody. And Rennie said his dream in life was to move to Hollywood, become a huge director and marry a movie star. Well, that was the guy on the other end of the phone when Gene was stepping out of our meetings. And guess what? Fanny was calling to tell me, oh, they got married. And Rennie has taken over as executive producer on all of Gene's projects. And he's putting on his writers on all of it. So you don't have to finish writing the revision. And I said, well, I, I didn't say anything for a while. And then, uh, okay. And she said, oh, you'll get paid, you know, for the step. Don't worry about that. You know, oh, that's not really why I'm in it. But so I hung up the phone and I'm, I'm kind of bumping around in a daze. And I thought, well, first of all, I will finish the draft and I will deliver it because I want to be protected in the event of an arbitration because there were mm -hmm. studio notes in there and I want them under my name. So I did that. I did a quickie revision, but I said, you know, I am so pissed off because this is just about ego. And the guy didn't even meet with me. You know, it didn't, you know, it was like, who is this fucking asshole? Who's this other guy? in <laughs> you know? So never met him, but that anger, just like the vagrant coming back from blood tide, I channeled. I quickly finished off the flies draft, the legal draft and got it in in about a week just so it was there on record and then i had this time and this money that i wasn't expecting so i said i'm going to write a script that will be such a fuck you to this business that i may never work again and i and i also gave myself the license that i put a pseudonym on it because sometimes as a writer it frees you up if you just say it's not going to be associated with me so i'm just going to cut loose here so I wrote a script called, initially, it was called Inside Man. That title was used by Denzel Washington movie a few years later, but that was the original title. And it went out, or it went to my agents and my lawyer, and they call me like stunned. They're like, this is so good. I had to read it a second time last night at 3 a.m. You know, really? Yeah. I said, because I was thinking of taking my name off of it. No, 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 no. So it went out and stir it became like the hot read among development people or one of, you know, you got to read this. And it, it made uh, a lot of relationships for me and put my career from here to here in that it was edgy, it was dark, it was political, it was futuristic, it was underworld. It was, by the way, a lot of shit we all know about now. I wrote in 19. What's the know, the premise of that one? A guy who is a lawyer, like a, he's like the pro bono, a big firm in New York, but he's like the pro bono guy that does the stuff that's good for public relations. You know, get, uh, you know, uh, uh, ghetto kind of guy off a murder charge and whatever, and your hero. And then we get all the good ink for that. And then we can do all this nefarious shit in the background. And, you know, everybody thinks we're okay. That sort of relationship. So he's a guy like that, idealistic. And this probably couldn't happen now, but there's, uh, and when the verdict is read, there's a courtroom shooting and, and the defendant is shot and a whole bunch of people are shot. The gun's pointed at him and it doesn't, and the guy doesn't shoot him. And then he's shot by security. They're like, what the fuck? Okay, this leads to, you got to take a break, go out to LA. And he, let's try to boil this down he gets drawn into an underworld that has always been there and always controlled him, but he never knew about, but he is being initiated into the next step of his existence because all of the, the he's a hero for the, the common man, you know, out of this news story. And we've seen this before. And actually a John Grisham movie did this after I wrote this, uh, that first scene, but okay. There are tunnels under LA they're like all the treasures of the world are on display down there, just as sort of decoration. <laughs> and he is told that he has been and is continuing to be groomed to be a presidential candidate, first Senate and then president. This is before Barack Obama. This is before, you know, just you're, you're going to we, we've been carefully laying the track. 
and that you can do all these things you want to do. You just have to do a few things we need you to do. So it is his, I guess, biblically, it's like the struggle of Job against these forces. And how do you, how do you go up against that? And it has to do with a kind of him engaging in a new level of consciousness in order to be able to do that. So hero's journey, he's challenged and he steps up and he figures it out, but it's, it's wild. It's wild. And, and it's has sex scenes in it that like, I would get me, I got a meeting at Disney, Disney of all, there was like <laughs> one executive, I won't name him nice enough guy, but I felt like he, his, he was given a duty and that was to put me on a project. They even wanted to like do a blind deal with me. Just, we don't know what the project is. We just want to pay you and we'll figure it out later, which I never want to do because I want to, I'm driven creatively and I want to know what the project is. So and then they wanted me to do Hawaii Five-0, the feature film. And I'm like, <laughs> really? So, but at the same time, Ridley Scott's company, Scott Free, Ridley and Tony Scott's company, had a project they sent me that was so wild. It was it, I know why they responded to me as a writer after Inside Man. And it was with a director named Marco Brambia, who had done Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone. He was putting his, trying to put his next project together. And I liked him. We, we got along well. And so Marco and I, let me try to remember this. I'm not sure he was a William Morris client or not. But we we ended up being put together, liked each other, and and went into to, to uh, uh, RSA as you know the his commercial uh, Ridley and Tony's commercial company at the time, and so that's where the offices were. So we went into RSA, and anyway, they hired uh, they wanted to hire me to adapt this really bizarre. It was like a Hunter Thompson kind of novel, and it was just like so in wild that you go well translated to a movie. Like, how do you even do that? Because of just the style of the of the writing. But I kind of had a way to do it. And Marco liked it. So they so I had to go to Disney and say, and they were like negotiating a deal for me to write Hawaii Five-0. And it's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to <laughs> do it. It's like some stupid rehash of a TV show. And and it, but somehow, man, the studio system wanted me after that. That read like, so what I'm saying is I was writing flies. I got fired because of Rennie Harlan. And I go, thank you, Rennie Harlan. You gave me the fuel on my gas tank to write Inside Man, which put my career on a whole different trajectory. And the script you were talking about is called Samsonite Warhead. Yep, 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 yep. And that's and that, 1994. Yeah, around. that'll never get made. That was a, a, a Dr. Strangelove take on the nuclear bomb in a suitcase movie. Yeah. So, yeah, that uh, after 9-11, that wasn't ever going to get made. <laughs> yeah, you know, I used to be a graphic designer, so I always do covers like that. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, do screen grabs so the audience <laughs> is missing yeah. all your fun script pages. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I would I would do a little bit of something on, on each of them. Before we move on, we'd love to yeah. dig in a little, like dig into flies a little yep. bit. And, yeah, so Gina, I mean, I assume... She has story by credit on the script. I'm assuming the story she was interested in was the idea that she gave birth to twins of Seth yeah. Brundle. Yep. That was kind of the seed you were given to run with. Yeah. And and she she had uh, a lot of specific ideas. Some of them fit. Some of them didn't. For some reason, she wanted a character called Rat Boy, who was like a hybrid rat. And I said, well, it's sort of off the trail here of the story you know and it may not fit but i mean she was good about that she she sort of saw and when i put the cards up on the board and she could see the whole thing uh because actors come at it from a different you know normally they come at it from a different place and you got to respect that because when i went back and read this just i'd forgotten what i read or I'd forgotten what i wrote and when i'm reading it i feel a lot of gina just in the personality of the character and the effervescence of some of the scenes. So I know I was playing off of her and absorbing her energy, even though she wasn't giving me specific kind of notes. So I was trying to tailor it for her and she liked it. 
And so, and this draft, I think is with studio, no, not with the studio notes, but with our creative groups notes, including Gina's. The, the yeah, the draft we April. have is from April 12th, 93. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the one that that I uh, chose to reread. Yeah, and yeah, for the audience, the the setup of the story is we start with uh, the, the the flies. Yeah, <laughs> we start with the end of the first movie, um, but kind of adding in the, the idea <laughs> that she was able to salvage Seth's like memory memory drive that has all his like research yeah. and recordings on there, yeah. Yeah. and she gets out of there. That, that was interesting in this one, Stanith Boren's like dies versus the fly two, where there's the whole scene where Eric Stoltz yeah. goes to visit him and he's still alive. Just kind of interesting. The two different paths, these yeah. dual sequels are taking, but then she goes on the run because she's implicated in the crimes of Seth Brundle here has the secrets. Yes. That, yeah. She has the secrets. The, the Bartok industries is after her. Eventually she's presumed dead. She takes on the new name. Marjorie Hansen gives birth to two boys, James and Gabe. Uh, James is kind of like the shy one. And Gabe is the sort of wilder one. So sort of like two sides of Seth Brundle really. Mm -hmm. And then really the story is about them hitting there's like a montage of them like growing up, but then it's really about them hitting puberty and Gabe starting to dis display the, you know, body changes signs. begin to happen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's really great scene that I made sure to make a note of where Gabe has like a weird gross zit and he's picking at it. And like any mom would, she's like, stop picking at it. And it's like helping him. But eventually it like bursts and it's disgusting. And there's like a huge long hair in there that she pulls out. And at the end of that, his brother James is like, if this is puberty, I'm taking a rain check. <laughs> then of course she has the hair analyzed and, you know, I also wanted Confirms to ask the worst. Yeah. yeah. And then so the, the story really gets going then when Bartok Industries, who's been, still been trying to work on Seth's stuff and just kind of can't crack it. And that's why yeah. they want his memory drive. Learn that she's alive. And we have kind of our two villains. And I wanted to ask where this name came from. Our main villain is Dr. Quantz. Rorschach? Is that how you yes, were saying that? Your best. <laughs> Where I, did that name come from? Out of the ether. I have no idea. I just play with names and doodle and come up with lists and words that, you know, relate to the something scientific, you know, something. You I liked know. it because in my mind, it was as a kid growing up and loving the first movie, I was always fascinated and confused by the name Stathis Borens yes. as our, you know, the jilted lover. And I was just like, what kind of insane name is that? <laughs> so I, I I view this as sort of hearkening back to that. Yeah. So Dr. Rorschach, uh, who has a partner, Miss Childs. Yes. And then I, kind of my favorite twist in the script as far as, because at first, you know, you're kind of like, okay, I see, you know, it's doing a little bit the Eric Stoltz fly two kids are going to turn into the fly. And where I really like that the movie takes an unexpected left turn is Dr. Rorschach like appeals to them. You know, it's like kind of trying to seem like a good guy. And it's like, I can fix Gabe. We've taken the technology so much farther than Seth Brundle could. It takes, they get on a plane, they fly back to Bartok Industries, which now they've got this like new super crazy, you know, Seth had his little two pods in his warehouse that he lived in. Now they have this whole big fancy setup. And as a, as a way to show off, he's like, we'll take this rabbit. Tell me something you want to change about this rabbit. That's like how advanced they've taken Seth's technology. And so like, oh, why don't you remove the spots? The rabbit has spots. So it's like, all right, we're going to take it from this pod to the other. And when it comes out, it's not going to have any spots. And you're kind of like, oh, this is interesting. But then they do it. And I wrote down the description. What comes out the rabbit or what used to be the rabbit is grotesquely scrambled, oversized, its eyes below its distorted mouth, its front paws growing out of its ears, its teeth and claws mutated huge and black. It coughs up its own intestines. And then basically Rorschach's whole personality turns and he's just sort of like freaking out about how like it doesn't work, you know? 
know, we need the information on that drive. And I love that he just had this weird demented fake out where they mangle this rabbit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then it turns again. Yeah. Then they, they got to go on the run again. The another dark moment from from Rorschach that I had forgotten writing, but uh, I liked when I read it is when he catches up to them later in the story and the boys have begun to transform to the point they're going, I like it, mom. I don't want to turn back, you know, and then Rorschach reads that in them and he's alone with them and he goes, hey, I can I want want you to be this way and I can make you a girlfriend who's just like you. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, we got there and I was like, oh, is are we going full bride of Frankenstein? But it turns <laughs> yeah. out he's just a manipulative asshole and was just trying to appeal to them. Yeah. But, yeah, but they go on the run again and they end up living on this little island where she meets a guy named Gunther who's able to like give them supplies. <laughs> Gunther just like joins their team even after seeing Gabe like crawling around on the ceiling. Because he loves, takes... he just falls in love with her so much. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it's a, you know, a parallel with real relationships where you go, man, I've so got the hots for the, oh, she's got these weird troubled kids. It's okay. And she it's wants okay. we'll a work bunch of out. illegal military parts to build some <laughs> yeah. teleportation pods. I'm in. But yeah. they build all this stuff. I mean, Ronnie and Gunther have a great exchange where I'm like, this 100% would have been in the trailer if this movie had gotten made, where she's like, no guy wants a woman with problem kids. Oh, all kids have problems, not like mine. <laughs> yeah, that is a trail. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. yeah. And then there's another scene where uh, they're testing it out and they combine a puppy and a spider mm -hmm. to see if they can then undo it, which is the whole point is that they're going to undo Gabe. Oh, and James, at this point, he has started displaying his flyness, yeah. which is basically just making him super smart. And his like head is getting all swollen and huge like a Star Trek alien. But so they make this spider puppy, the spuppy. But then Gabe doesn't want to like turn it back because yeah, you know, he, he's starting to like kind of like being well, not like it, but I think it's just he's as he's becoming more of a fly. Uh, mm -hmm. He doesn't want to go back to just being a normal person. And there's also this they're they're living in the barn of a woman named Mrs. Uh, how are you Precox. saying that? Precox. Uh, and it's a whole great thing where the first time we meet her, she's like spraying bugs with raid. And, you know, Gabe's kind of like looking at that suspiciously. And then <laughs> later when he's kind of freaking out and turning more into a monster, she ends up spraying him in the face with the raid. And then, man, this the whole climax of this is truly bonkers. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Because they're out on an <laughs> island that you have to take a ferry to get there. And then they end up stealing the ferry with some of their like pods. So they're trying while they're on the like run from the cops because Rorschach and Childs have like tracked them down and the cops are on the way. And so they're trying to finish the experiment. Um, oh, and I, I left out the craziest part before they even get to the ferry, they push Childs and Rorschach into the pods together. Gunter, Gunter did in a fight. He ends yeah. up throwing them in there together and locking them So they them get in. merged together. And what I like yeah. about this that I, I'd never really thought about is because he always says, you know, you got to get in the pods naked. But as all we ever really see mm -hmm. in the movie of that is naked with nothing else and is a fly. But they're still in their clothes with all their like stuff with in their gun. pockets and a gun. And so <laughs> the two of them and all their clothes and the gun <laughs> merge into this just like insane franken creature that yeah that, that has a one of its fingers is a gun and can shoot and there's like a phone on them and their clothes are kind of like going in and out of their skin yeah, see that that was awesome because the whole film the, the script while reading it i'm keep thinking oh it's about these two sons and one of them is becoming more and more evil gabe and i'm thinking he's going to be the villain and then and and then in that last act when you get this other creature, it's like, oh, then it just it's like next level, man, early mid 90s, seeing that in the big screen. I'm so bummed. That would have been such a great sequence. Yep. Uh, and then truly bizarre ending, fittingly, of the very bizarre script is we get to the point, which is an interesting conundrum that initially you're like, how are they going to solve this is Gabe and James have now been they've transformed too far. There's like not enough human left in them to just be put back the way they were, but they realize they're identical twins. So the logic is, well, what if we combine you or they're going to do it? They're going to 
turn them into one person and the fly back into one fly mm-hmm. and it works. So it ends with, yeah, I assume they would have been probably played by just one actor maybe, or maybe they would yeah. have found twins. Uh, Dead ringers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But now, now it's just one of them. Uh, and I'm just like, wow, that's like, it's a happy ending, but it's also kind of demented <laughs> that mm-hmm. yeah. she had, she had two sons and now just has one, but it looks the same. And the fly escapes, but it seems to have human aspects. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not not visually, but it it behaviorally, it seems to have taken some of the human aspects with them with it. But yeah, th- this was uh again, I I it was just it was a fun read because you know it's interesting because it was so soon after the fly two. And obviously mm-hmm. the setup's completely different, but it's still the same basic idea of what if Brundle's kid who seems human slowly yeah. starts turning into a monster. And I like just how quickly you kind of are like, all right, well, we got past that part of the setup and now we're just going to get to the real bonkers stuff. Yeah. I mean, was, yeah, it's funny. Obviously it did not work out well in the relationship, but the version of this when, cause this was at the same time Rennie Harlan was doing cliffhanger and Imagine a world in which he made he and Gina made this instead of Cutthroat Island, which, you know, really tanked his career and didn't do hers any favor. No, like this, that that's an all very interesting alternate timeline. And imagining him directing this with all the big fairy stuff at the end. Yeah, yeah. He he would have done great with that. I'm not sure about the relationship stuff and some of the subtleties of parenting that you're talking about. But, you know. But maybe she could have pushed that part through. Yeah, maybe. Because yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do, I really love a long kiss good night. So I like to imagine yeah. it's some of that same magic could yeah. have worked between the two of them. In, in her biography, she talks about this project briefly. And she says, at the end, I'm on trial for killing one of my boys because I can't because she turns them into one. Was that ever discussed with you? Because no, it, it seems like the next right. It seems like a trial file. feels like a very oh. like a kill. A kill that must have been Rennie's writer. Rennie's writer. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. On trial. Yeah, that's what she says. Because <laughs> your ending is like it's like your, your whole third act is crazy and it's like nonstop and it's a lot of fun. And then when I'm reading her bio about so they make him into one boy and then she's on trial at the end for killing one of her boys. So it's like, oh, what up? That would just completely. Why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> would completely... Why? I mean, maybe I if that know. had happened like midway through the movie. I mean, what's you the know, old Roger you know, Corman quote? When your monster's dead, the movie's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's it, it's a funny thing. You know, different creative minds bring different baggage and different fascinations with them. You know, I've been involved with a lot of editing of feature films, have editor friends, and just the stuff that's cut out is amazing. It's like they don't figure out what the story is. And and my friend Terry Rossio has said this, that they'll develop a script and they'll have all their notes and they'll go, well, the logic, story logic doesn't, and you got to go back into blah, 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 blah. And so the writer does all of that and makes it airtight. And then he said, at the point they hire a director or a star, the story switch goes off and none of the executives can see that it's getting way off track because of the notes of the star or the director. And it's just like they don't realize it until the first preview with the audience and the audience is twitching or the numbers are bad. And then they go, oh, shit, it doesn't make sense. So it, yeah. <laughs> And I think that's a great place to stop for right now. Uh, We are going to hit pause on this conversation and pick things back up in part two of our conversation with Richard Jeffries. The next episode, we'll be talking about his unmade Sonic the Hedgehog movie, along with Silver Surfer and some other things. Uh, We'd like to give a very special thanks on this episode to uh, one of our friends of the podcast, Mr. Twain Nguyen, who's always very supportive and sends us a lot of the scripts we use. He also helped connect us to Mr. Jeffrey. So thank you, sir. Yes. Um, And thank you all for listening. If you'd like more of our podcast or more so more of Steve and I, we recommend that you join our Patreon. It's a great way to support the podcast and to get a little extra content. You can also follow us 
either personally or the podcast itself on all the socials. But until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. 